This is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to the British prize-winning author of At the Existentialist Café and How to Live. The latter won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography in the US and the Duff Cooper Prize for Nonfiction here in the UK. She's also written essays and reviews for several publications, including The New York Times, The Guardian and The Financial Times. Her new book is Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Freethinking, Inquiry and Hope. Sarah Bakewell, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thanks very much. Sarah, you have an extraordinary background. Your parents travelled hugely. Tell us about the why, first of all. Oh, pure curiosity and desire to see the world. And we're talking about the 60s, so this was the hippie trail era of uh, heading off to India in a Volkswagen van. That's exactly what they did. I mean, they'd always done a lot of travelling, but when I was five years old, going on six, they loaded me and everything else into a, a VW combi and just hit the road, drove out through India. We spent about two years and ended up in Australia. So I grew up there for most of my childhood. But I didn't realise there was anything unusual about that. I thought everybody did that. <laughs> and do you have strong memories of that time? Um, they're very fragmentary because I was still very young. So I just have flashes here and there. I've got quite strong memories of Goa because we spent a long time there. It was a case of pulling in, maybe to stay overnight. And in fact, the wheels of the van were still a bit crooked when they, because they weren't you know, parking up properly. And then, in fact, they were there for about two months without, without even straightening the wheels. It was a great, it wasn't the great tourist thing that it is now. It was, some beaches were quieter than others. We were on a fairly quiet one. And it was a matter of buying fresh fish every day from the the fishermen that brought it in and that was the rest of it was just sort of beach and uh, great life sounds idyllic yeah. i mean yeah there were a few other kids there not that many uh travelers took children with them but a few did uh, i wasn't the only one for me it was an incredibly free i mean in a way not free because of course i was stuck with my parents every you know wherever we went i went with them but actually i had an encounter with so many different cultures and the great beauties of the world. I mean, temples and everything like that, which admittedly at five, I sort of wasn't very culturally sophisticated about understanding what I was looking at. But the um, curiosity that I had because of missing out on quite some long chunks of schooling, it, I just pursued what I was interested in. There were always books, people always sort of... And you could read and write? Books. Yeah. Despite I, the schooling? I, I'm not I don't even remember learning to read. I think I must have more or less taught myself at quite a young age. One of my very earliest memories, actually, is of having a book. We were in America travelling around on the Greyhound buses and I had a, a picture book about animals stealing a fire engine, a toy fire engine, which then gets out of control and they go careering down a hill and end up in a thorn bush or something. And this was... I remember reading that, and I can't have been more than three, even younger at the time. It's my earliest memory is of a book. That says a lot about, about <laughs> me, I think. So you, you go to Australia, but then you come back to Britain. Eventually, yes. I mean, I spent most of my childhood in Australia. There was a bit more travelling, but we came back here when I was 14. And, in fact, my parents eventually went back to Australia again. They're still alive, still living there. And um, I instead ended up 
one thing led to another and I went to university here. So I've been based here pretty much from then on. And you read philosophy at university and then you started a PhD but ended up working in a teabag factory. Yes, I thought that was an interesting <laughs> career development <laughs> from from a PhD which was going to be on Heidegger and I, I started it and I was very, very fascinated by Heidegger's philosophy at the beginning. I think various things happened. I, I wanted to write, I wanted to try and write fiction. I got a little bit disillusioned with Heidegger specifically and I wanted to maybe move to London, live in a bigger city and... A lot of those things came together. I wanted to kind of go and have an, an adventure and I didn't think of several years more of working on Heidegger as being quite what I wanted to do at that point. Yeah. Of course, I then had to find a job to support myself and that's where the teabag factory came into it. So I had this job that was flipping boxes of tea bags on their sides and then pushing them along to the next person on a factory line. And that was an education. I mean, I certainly learned... I think I learned more from my factory working experiences than I did from... Heidegger in the end. Of human nature. Well, I think really about, it's partly about the what your mind does while you're doing these things and the people who, you know, did them for years, but they managed to commute. So, for example, one of the factories I was in was very noisy, but people had developed a kind of sign language to be able to, and lip reading, to be able to communicate with each other or chatting while doing it, even though you couldn't hear you know, anything. It was a time of great change in the industrial the old industrial way of working that had been dominant for so long. So this was early 80s and some of those factories, especially in London, were beginning to either shut down or get outsourced to other countries. I mean, all sorts of changes were going on, but this was still the traditional model much more of how factories are run. Ah, fascinating. You then went on to work at another incredibly interesting place, which is the the Wellcome Library for the History of Medicine. Tell us about that time, because you spent a decade there. I did, and it was wonderful. I started out just as a, like, cataloguing the more modern books, but after a couple of years, I got a job in the early printed books department as a curator, and that was so interesting, so fascinating, lovely to be able to work with these books, and the Wellcome is a terrific place. I mean, it encourages scholarship and encourages research. And not only did I have all this contact with the books and be able to do the research, the bibliographic research in order to catalogue them, but I also started reading them. (laughs) And that ended up introducing me to some really forgotten and interesting stories, which is how I ended up switching to writing about those stories. Uh, let's, have a look at, <laughs> let's have a look at your work. So you wrote The Smart, and that was a real-life courtroom uh, drama that was set in the, in the 18th century. The English Dane, which was about Jorgen Jorgensen. Yes. Uh, he was uh, part of the revolution in Iceland. And then How to Live. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, How to Live is about the French essayist Michel de Montaigne. I came across him by accident, just picking up a book when I was desperate for something to read. I didn't expect it to be much fun. And in fact, it's loads of fun. Absolutely, you know, you could lose yourself in his essays. And you really have the sense of meeting a a person, a personality. And despite the fact that it was written, you know, over, well, 500 years ago, it's, Mm. uh, yeah... And I fell in love, I'd fallen in love with him long before that and uh, wanted to explore his life. So it's a biography, but I was also interested in how people have read his essays over the years since then. And it's so it's kind of a story of how he was read as well and what people have made of him and how they've interpreted their own historical moments through 
his writings. So it's kind of both of those things at the same time and uh, was a lot of fun to write. Mm. You then went on to at the Existentialist Cafe, Freedom, Being and Apricot Cocktails. That was published in 2016. Uh, And that is about existentialism. Yeah, so that took me back a little bit to my original studies of philosophy and Heidegger's in it as well. It's, uh, again, it kind of, it's biographies of the people involved, but it's also a um, portrait of a whole time because what they were writing was so tied up with the very difficult historical times that they were living through before, during and after the Second World War. And it was trying to explore how their ideas had been developed in relation to each other. So Heidegger sort of a very German tradition of phenomenology, which we won't, you know, won't, I won't get bogged down in that, but basically it's sort of a method for doing philosophy. Mm-hmm. In the hands of people like Jean-Paul Sartre when it went to France, it became something very different, much more about sort of what it feels like to be in love or have love affairs or be repelled from somebody else even. And it, it became a sort of personal but also quite rigorous in its way form of philosophy. Mm. So, yeah, my again, it was really a chance for me to explore what I was interested in and to and to revisit some of this stuff too. And re, revisiting Heidegger certainly made me realise that I responded to him very differently now, much less enthusiastically than I did when I first read him in my 20s. You know, he's something of a, of a mystic, I think, and uh, I've, I'm not so much of a mystic. Mm. Let's come to this mm. this new book, which is a, a fantastic feat. 700 years of humanist free-thinking, inquiry and hope. I mean, this has to have been a huge <laughs> labour of love. It was, a totally labour of love. I mean, physically, it's not that huge a book, actually, but it, it, in terms of the research and reading and the things that I wanted to put into it, I wanted to put in, I mean, at the beginning... I, it would have been at least three times longer, but I had to mm. get tough with myself at a certain point and start being selective about who got in into it. But it does it covers from the 14th century until now, although there's not very much about contemporary humanism. It's mainly the historical path that some humanist ideas have taken between those two points. It's mainly about European humanist tradition. It's uh, it's not exclusively human. European, but it does centre on the European world through those times. I want to just stop mm. you there and ask mm. a very basic question. How would you describe humanism? Well, the book starts with that, actually, because it's the obvious question, and I take a very broad definition of humanism. So the humanism that's best known in the English-speaking world is it can be a campaigning movement and it represents the interests of people who are not religious or they don't primarily take a religious source of meaning and ethics in their lives, but instead look to our connections with each other, with the natural world, with other life forms, both for a sense of meaning and for a sense of moral purpose. So that's, you could roughly call it secular humanism. That's Mm. the one that's probably what most people think of today in the English-speaking world. But it has this long history humanism that has all kinds of philosophical meanings to do with the idea about what a human being is, seeing humans as having great potential, perhaps trying to look at things on a human scale rather than a great ideological scale mm. or a cosmic scale, because we are we live in a human realm and we need to take that seriously for ourselves. And then there's the word that's at the origin of the humanities. So when we talk about the humanities, we're talking about 
what they used to call the human studies, studia humanitatis in, in Latin. And that was the foundation of humanist in the sense of people who specialised in teaching, investigating history, culture, literature. And that really got underway, which is where the book eventually sort of, I chose that point as, as the place to start it with mm. the 14th century people like Petrarch and Boccaccio, who devoted themselves to finding manuscripts that had been sort of half forgotten and lost that went back to the ancient world, reading them, editing them, writing their own work and trying to, they were trying to bring about a kind of moral revival for Mm. for Mm. their century. Humanism, though, as you point Mm. out, for many years was just that humans were only white and male. Yes. And that has, that's part of the story, too, that I try and trace, that it gradually, and it's not a smooth one way clear process but gradually there have been voices pointing out that that's not good enough and that doesn't go far enough that's not what a human being necessarily is so there's some very interesting women writers in the European tradition who began to make that argument and began to particularly take issue with there was always an idea that there should be separate virtues i.e. you know ways of being an excellent human being ways of behaving well that there were the men's ones, which were kind of all positive and, you know, like to be engaged with the world in politics and to be bold and brave and well-read. And and then there were all the women's virtues, which were mainly to be quiet, silent, modest, and to to sort of not be talked about by anybody, to be be invisible and to be chaste, which on the scale of, of sort of human qualities is probably one of the least exciting things that you could be (laughs) expected to aspire to. So, yeah, they took issue and said, look, they're all human virtues. The the point is how to be a good human being, not how to be a good man or a good woman. Mm. So that certainly happened with somebody like Mary Wollstonecraft in the 18th century who made Mm. that argument. Really, the thing is to develop a human character. And there are other sort of literary crossovers, for instance, George Eliot or Ian Forster. Yeah, it's um Ian Forster was was a committed humanist, he was a member of humanist organizations and the humanist way of thinking pervades his novels. He has this great line only connect which he has one of his characters in Howard's End say and it's the epigraph on the title page of the book so he's pointing out how significant it is and it means making connections with other people, making connections between your own experience and what others might be feeling and the fact that it might be something similar that others feel. So connections then between your actions and the consequences that they have for other people Uh, and even connections within yourself, so not being hypocritical, having integrity and sense of wholeness. All of that is packed into those two words. Mm -hmm. But it's a strong humanist thought because there's a lot in humanism about connecting with others and empathy and human community. It's very important to several kinds of humanism. But not not a connection to a higher power. I mean, how does humanism sit alongside religion? It's really interesting because the further you go back, there's definitely no clear opposition of any kind between them. I mean, a lot of humanists in the past worked within the church. They had church positions. They didn't set themselves up as outspoken atheists and and probably were not atheists in any sense that we would recognise. What I think they often did have was an interest in the human realm. So traditionally there were, there's the physical world and then there's the, there's the divine world, which theology deals with. The physical world would become the realm of science. The human world is 
in between those things. And it's the, the realm of culture and society and morality and language, literature, the arts, dancing, folk song, you know, all the things that, that we do. I think most humanists that I've encountered through this book, what really marks them out is that whether or not they believe in God and the other sort of aspects of church doctrine, they always seem much more interested in that realm than in anything else. Mm. So much more interested in that realm than whatever divine reality there may or may not be. What about death, humanism and death? Yeah, there's some, again, they vary a lot. Some of them don't, um, there's signs that some of them begin to, especially in the Enlightenment, don't believe in an afterlife. And probably, I think, there were others before then. But the case that really leaps out to me is David Hume, great Enlightenment philosopher, very challenging philosopher of people's general certainties about the physical world and everything else. I mean, he's always asking questions. Somebody said of him, the thing about Hume is if you go to him with any problem, you'll always come away with the answer that it's even worse than you thought it was. <laughs> Not worse in the sense of bad, but it's even more complicated than you thought it was and, and difficult to know. Anyway, he, though, was a, this very easygoing character. Everybody liked him. They called him, you know, the good David. He, he was just, he was always popular at parties. A very kind of, quite a jolly soul most of his life. And he was known for not having any expectation of an afterlife, having really, you know, thinking death was the end. Mm. And yet not seeming to have any problem about that. It's like he just... And it became very marked because he did become fatally ill with a kind of intestinal cancer or stomach cancer, I think. And... Um, People went to visit him. I mean, James Boswell, as in Boswell's Life of Johnson, was one of the people who, who called on him and just sort of quizzed him about it. Like, how can you not be afraid of death? And Hume was just like, well, you know, I'm not. I'm, I'm really very happy. It's, uh... The only thing was that Hume wanted to keep on correcting the last versions of his books right up until the end. And he, there's this scene that was reported when he was just days from the end where he was pleading with like the boatman that, you know, traditionally in mythology ferries you across the river stick saying, just one more minute, I just need to correct this final page yeah. for publication. So it's, that was the one thing that, that made him reluctant to go. You, you write about humanism and hope. Uh, you talk about the seed of ethics, the ethical drive innate in us. So are we moral by nature or nurture? The jury's out on how much is nature and nurture. I think nurture is a tremendous part of that. A lot of humanists have had a feeling that we have the seeds of being moral in us by nature, but the that's not enough, just having the seeds. So you need the nurture to make those seeds grow. And that you find that in Chinese Confucian philosophy. There was a philosopher called Mengzi, we know him as Mencius in, in the West, who was a follower of Confucius, and he wrote that we know we have that seed by, if you imagine sort of walking along and seeing a small child fall into a pond, what do you feel? And almost certainly you feel an immediate impulse to run forward and jump in and save the child. And he said, that is not in itself a morality. You can't call that an ethical system, but it's the seeds of an ethical system. It shows that there's something in us that is essentially good, which is a big claim and of course others don't agree and there's an awful lot of debate about about what those terms even mean to be sort of you know innately good 
certainly what humanism does stress is that we're a work in progress all the time. So we certainly can't sit on our laurels and say, well, we're just innately good, so therefore I don't need to do anything. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. It's, you become good by developing those seeds. And mm, by... mm. Let's look at humanism and technology. So AI, of course, the area that, that you've mm. studied, social media. How does this affect the way we connect? It's it's such a fascinating, maybe terrifying moment that we're in. I mean, from the point of view of the humanist tradition, there's several aspects to it because there's the obviously the basic question of what is it to be a human being and all this idea of human dignity and excellence how is that going to be impacted if we have very very advanced technologies and there's also more immediate effects I think on education education in the humanities I mean you can now ask chat GPT to write you an essay and in fact I I tested that by logging on to chat GPT and asking it to write a little essay about is artificial intelligence a threat to humanism? And it came back with this very sensible answer saying, well, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's some aspects where it's helpful because it can lead to better living conditions, you know, by better research and, uh, you know, better information to make sure that uh, there's more e- equality by analysing the but it's important to, you know, make sure that developments are in line with humanist values. And so in conclusion, it's a mixture of... I thought, this has been written by not a human being. It sounds like it's written by a human being. It's rather bland. It lends itself to a kind of blandification of everything yes. because it's very good at giving that kind of, well, on the one hand this and on the other hand that and and a very bland conclusion so maybe we'll be seeing a lot of that emerging in educational institutions. How would you say that humanism exists in the world today? And, and what is the importance of human thought? Human thought in general is, well, I don't think we can imagine life without human thought. I mean, that's what we are. That's what we do. We, we you know, I think the importance of humanism today is... I'm starting to feel like a bit of a chat GPT bot saying this, but it's there's many aspects to it. You know, there's sort of on the one hand this, the other hand that. One of the things to say immediately is that a lot of humanists are currently living in fear of their lives and having to be very careful. There's about 80 countries in the world where humanist beliefs, and I'm speaking about the, the secular type humanism, mm is to a varying degree can get you into trouble. It's illegal. In some cases, I think there's about 13 or 14 countries where it's technically punishable by death under the form of blasphemy, because it's blasphemy, considered blasphemy. You know, I think we tend to forget living in countries where that isn't really the case, just what a difference it is when, you know, humanism is considered dangerous, it's considered a threat, and it's repressed. So... One of the key things I think that humanist organisations do is to try and provide resources and support for people who are living in dangerous situations because of their humanist beliefs. So there's the campaigning side, and it also generally tries to raise awareness of of humanism as as one worldview that Mm. is perfectly valid and that you can have. I think other forms of humanism are going to be very much to the fore because of the rise of authoritarian politics. Humanists have a very good record of being very unhappy and being very good at warning about those 
things. Not such a good record of actually being able to stop it because it's, you know, how do you stop the rise of authoritarian politics? Saying humanist things doesn't always, doesn't seem to work, but I'm not quite sure what does. But I think there's going to be challenging times ahead. And as you said, the rise of AI, the general technological transformation of so many aspects of our experience is all going to be a challenge. But I think the the humanist view on these things will be very relevant to the discussion that we're going to have to mm. have. And I mean, we're in an age now, again, once again, of great scientific discovery. Where does that sit within humanism? Well, humanists, and again, I'm speaking about the modern humanists, the perhaps more secular ones, are, but others too, are usually great believers in what science can achieve because science is, after all, a human pursuit. I mean, it is a human activity and it's often driven by the very human goals of wanting to make life better, to reduce disease, to provide better medical treatments and to just, you know, improve the... There's a lot of technology, for example, that will make life more easier or better for people living with various disabilities. So there's lots of tech beyond medicine. There's a lot of, you know, sort of hard tech that's going to be very useful. So humanists are really more likely to be in favour of that sort of thing, I think. But the difference between a, a humanist and, and a sort of scientist, I mean, a scientist is someone who sort of thinks everything can be reduced to science. I think a humanist would say, well, in the human world, this is not the case because there's a whole realm of human activity that is cultural, religious, religion is very much included in that, moral and ethical. And all of these are things that don't make much sense if you don't have that basic human context. Mm. I mean, aside from blasphemy, I find it hard to see why anybody would object to humanism. What's controversial? I think there's also the anti-authoritarian tendency at the very heart of it. It's not, you know, anti-religion so much as it's anti the imposition of authorities, whether it's religious authorities or political authorities, whether it appeals to something that goes beyond just ordinary human welfare. So referring everything either to a divine commandment or referring it to the interests of the state. This was the fascist thing in the 20th century that the state is what matters. The individual well-being just doesn't matter at all. Or in the case of communist ideology, it was Everything's about, you know, unfolding the historical inevitability of some perfect world in the future, which is going to come via a, a not very pleasant stage now. But, you know, suck it up because it's going to get us somewhere that's worthwhile. Never mind the sacrifices that individuals might make now. Humanism tends to counter all of that, tends to resist it. And the, that makes it dangerous. That can make it dangerous. Are you a humanist? Yes, I am a humanist. I am. I'm not a subscriber to any sort of... I try not to kind of adhere to any kind of manifesto. You know, I don't I don't really... But then that's quite funny because that puts me in common with about 90% of humanists who don't <laughs> usually like sticking to a set of rules and manifestos. There are humanist manifestos produced by the various organisations and they're very good and they've evolved a lot over time. It's nice to see them becoming more and more wide-ranging, inclusive and, you know, just better really. But I no, I'm not really a, much of a joiner of, of anything that's going to tell me what to think. But the bottom line is, yes, I am a humanist.
Sarah Bakewell, thank you so much. Sarah's book is Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry and Hope. It's out at the end of March. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the producer Nora Hull. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.